Thank you very much. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Pastor Matt, and I have the privilege many often to teach God's Word here. Um, do want to expre- express my thanks for Michael and Kayla and all our other adult volunteers who serve in our youth ministry. I don't know if you heard that Michael and Kayla have been doing that for six years, and so by their appearance, you realize that they started doing that in early middle school. <laughs> now we all we all wish we could look as young as those two. Um, so you know, uh, it is it's 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 good to see people and to be together. And obviously, still this is still somewhat of an artificial uh, environment where we're not able to sit as close as we like and touch as often in appropriate ways, of course. Um, um, but it's, it is a privilege to praise God together, to lift up his name, to, to sit under his word. Uh, if you didn't, if you're hoping to take the Lord's Supper with us later, if you didn't pick up uh, this cup that also has the bread on top, you can pick that up now. We'll, we'll, we'll move to that right after this sermon. And then we're closing at the end with exuberant singing. And uh, uh, those of you who don't know that there's been some research that uh, singing brings more of these particles in the air. So if you feel uncomfortable staying around for the singing, you can step out after the taking of the Lord's Supper, and we'll, we, we're just being gracious to one another um, in this unique season. But uh, if you would open up your Bibles, we are continuing walking through the book of Exodus. We are in Exodus chapter 21. Um, I really believe it's powerful to preach through books of the Bible, moving fairly in chronological order. And there's times like this week and a couple weeks ago that what ends up being the next passage in the text is impacting our culture uh, right in front of us. And that's what we're going to find today. The verses we're looking at are civil laws, laws given for the people of Israel under the old covenant. And these civil laws are built on two moral laws very strongly articulated in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal, and you shall not covet. I was reflecting in my own life that the first time I think I can remember someone stealing is I was in the fourth grade and I went over to play at a friend's house some afternoon and he's like, do you want to go over to this drugstore and get some stuff? And I was like, yes. And I watched him go up and steal money out of his mom's purse. And I remember kind of feeling very appalled, like shocked. But he kind of talked me into it. He went off and did it. And what was appalling in a few Weeks, months for me became appealing. And the next thing I knew, um, I was stealing from my father's wallets and stores and my brother. I'd like to say that after I became a follower of Jesus Christ in middle school, I never stole again, but that wouldn't be the whole truth. On various occasions, I've reasoned my way into taking things that don't belong to me, sometimes in direct ways, other times more indirect or discreet ways. What about you? Have you fudged on your taxes to avoid a few dollars that should go to the government? Have you, re- have you ever been at restaurants or stores that have forgotten to bill you for something, and you've taken it as, oh, I guess I'm lucky today, 
Have you used discounts that didn't apply to you? Have you taken things that do not belong to you? Have you damaged things with no sense of obligation to make the loss of that other person right through your means? And so the, the more that I search my heart over the last several weeks studying this passage, the more I see various sorts of passions and, and, and drives that, that motivate my behavior. Greed, a sense of privilege, selfishness, maybe a thrill at being cunning, a fear of not having enough, a sense that others shouldn't have such things things, but if they do, I do too. Yet if we look at, start looking at the Bible's view of our possessions and, and the property of others, we'll see that God desires his people to have such a different sort of hearts. He wants different driving passions. He would want us to see that honoring possessions actually honors persons. Let me pray and then we'll start digging in. Lord, I want to, I just want to ask us to have uh, your mind on these matters and the way that we honor you would flow out in honoring others. And then you'd help us to, to look at these texts with humility and grace uh, toward one another and also just a sense of submission before the Lord. Amen. Do you realize there's only two people in the world? There's people that know that it is a violation of God to speak during movies and those other people. Um, you know, there's all kinds of rules that get established in communities that show this is how we show respect here. This is how we show love here. In my home of origin, many of you know this, you could not walk around in that home with your shoes on or you would be shot. I actually had 17 siblings and now we're down to four. Um, but that was the way that you showed respect to your, my mother. In, in, in college, I was a part of a fraternity, and the way that you showed love and respect there is you did your chores and you came to chapter meetings. If you didn't come to chapter meetings or you ignored the chores, it was kind of an insult to your brothers. The part where we are in God's Word, in the book of Exodus, it's about the, the rules. In fact, that's what it started with, uh, Exodus 21.1. God speaking, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. So this is Moses setting forth the rules. And these were the rules established in this covenant relationship that God had with Israel, beginning at Mount Sinai, and really proceeding until Jesus Christ inaugurated the new covenant by his blood at the cross. But these rules were for God's people to honor God, but also reflect God in the community. And they are still, the principles behind these rules are surprisingly relevant. And the ones that we're looking at today are the idea of the value of people, the value of possession, the value of lives, why we should honor others' livelihoods. And just thinking about over the last four or five months, COVID-19, there's been this debate in culture, right, about the value of lives and then businesses and people's means of livelihood. The, 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 you know, the, maybe the reamplification of the importance of Black Lives Matter. We've been seeing around the country the value and dignity of humans, persons. And then there's this issue going on with people's possessions being mistreated. Again, this text is relevant to what's going on, and there's principles that we can learn from. 
We'll look at maybe three major ideas, and then we'll tie some ideas at the end. But the first idea we're going to see in verses 28 through 31, in Exodus 21, 28 through 31. Let me read this to you. It says, when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned, but was not kept in it, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. And if it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. And if the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their masters 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. Simple principle here is that human life trumps the value of property and possessions. And the first is it talks about if there's a, a bull and it gores a man to death, and it's an accidental goring, to show your grief for the loss of a human life, that bull is killed. There is no profit, there is no meat to be shared. You grieve, you don't, no one gets to walk away with a few bucks from that animal's carcass when that human being dies. It is a day of grief, and you don't, there's no profit. And you, the, the, the loss of the possession is at bare minimum necessary to show that that human life is far more valuable than the possession or the property. Because human lives trump the value of. We, we understand that principle a little bit in our culture when it comes to, like, car accidents. Right? There's degrees of car accidents. Um, there's accidental sorts of vehicular homicide, but then there's very culpable ones, like a drunk driver or a reckless driver. And when they cause the death of a human person, they are to be held to account. We, we get that. But it's... It can be lost on us. It can be lost on us when you think about what happens to different people around the world who labor to the risk of their very lives, and then we profit from them by getting cheap goods. Their lives are more invaluable than the property. Um, one of the um, images I saw over the last few weeks I thought was worth meditating on, and this, was the, this, is, what it, this is what I read. It says, white privilege says... It's horrible that an innocent black man was killed, but destroying property has to stop. Rather than saying, it's horrible that property is being destroyed, but killing innocent black men has to stop. Where's the emphasis? The emphasis in the Old Testament is that human lives are more important than property, than possessions. You might you know, a parallel thing would be issues of the unborn. The life of the unborn is more important than the financial future or possessions of those that might take the life of the unborn. Because human life is more important than possessions, than property, than financial success, than getting ahead, than some sort of economic privilege. And God's people, under the old covenant, were supposed to recognize that and be symbolized and that if this, you know, it's, I brought along, the closest thing I had to a, a, an ox or a bull goring was Charity's unicorn <laughs> and her doll. 
And so if that unicorn gores this beautiful little doll to death, the unicorn's got to go. Right? But I always I bring that up is because th- that ox or, you know, we kinda, when you're not in an agrarian culture, you don't realize how significant that ox really was. That actually was their livelihood. That was their investment. They might not have a bank account. They might have one beast. That's it. And yet, that beast took a human life. It goes. At the great expense and livelihood of the future of that family, but a life was lost, and that life matters more than the possession, more than the property. Second, even though, and and we have to emphasize this, human life trumps property significantly. What's interesting, though, in the next second verses is valuing property and possessions of others shows that you value other persons. If you doubt that, just imagine how you would feel the next time you invited someone over to dinner and they came in with a sledgehammer and took it to, took it to your refrigerator. I think you'd immediately th- say, like, I, I, I kind of took that one to the chin when you took out the fridge and the TV and then proceeded to the couch. Let, let's just walk through some of these. Verse 33 talks about when a man opens a pit... Or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it and an ox or donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner and the dead beast shall be his. Verse 35 says, when one, man, one man's ox butts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it in, He shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. The way you value another person to show their value is when you're culpable, whether accidental or guilty negligence, you have to make the situation right. Sorry is not enough. Did you catch that? Sorry is not enough. You cause someone's possessions or property, livelihood. If it was accidental, you just make it right. If you're culpable, you're also going to have extra burdens put on you. But sorry is not enough. Many years ago, my father owned this small semi-rundown building around the square in Indianola, Iowa. You know, one of those small Iowa towns, the courthouse in the middle, and all these buildings that are all attached all around. Well, he owned a building. So you can imagine this. He owns a building. And then beside him was another building, right? And they're touching. And then this was, then there was an alley. Well, the building with the alley, uh, that people had commented a few times, you know your exterior wall is kind of bowing into the alley. And the owner of that building decided, like, huh, things happen. Until the day when that bow just, like, fell off the side of the building into the alley and then it ripped part of the adjacent wall that my father shared with them, and then it opened up the roof, and it was like months of insurance companies and lawyers trying to decide, was the owner of the building that leaned to the alley, were they culpable for not fixing the bowed building? Right? That's a little bit what Old Testament law is trying to solve for you. Like, if you're aware that you have a dangerous animal, and you don't deal with it, you don't pen it up, and they cause an issue, 
It's a serious issue. It needs to be made right. It has to be dealt with. And you can't just say sorry. You make it right. And you make it right, in this case, financially or property for property. A couple, many years ago, I was borrowing my, leaf, my neighbor's leaf blower. God bless him. And of course, I break it. You know, and so I bring back the broken leaf blower and 50 bucks, right? Because, oh, you don't need to do that. I don't know. I I guess I don't know how to run a leaf blower. (laughs) Let's keep going because there's more to this. Uh, Look at verses 1 through 6. This goes from an accident to, to, to intentional. It says, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen and and for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun is risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose, and it feeds on another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. Six, if, vi- if a fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. So verses uh, one through four are about intentional stealing and theft and getting you know, if it's intentional stealing, stealing and theft and you kind of feel guilty about it, you know, you could just come back and just make things square. But if you get caught, that is, there was no repentance on your part, you just got caught, there's fourfold and fivefold or at least a, a double return because your intentional stealing needs to be made, there needs to be amends. And the dollar for dollar wasn't enough. There's a guilt pay. You're paying for the guilt as well. This is whether you cause intentional damage. This is whether why you, you cause intentional stealing. A number of years ago, one of my children, who shall remain nameless, had some extra gum on hand after we had visited a local store. Right? And so the extra gum needed to be returned. It happens, but it needs to be made right. Verses 7 through 15 say this, If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods, to keep safe, and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. Now, I want you to catch what they're doing. This is uh, God laying down kind of like case law so that when judges are, are trying cases, they, they know how to look for what is right and to make sure that there's equal justice under the law. So, If they can discover that it was a thief who broke in, then the person who had the possession doesn't need to make it right. But if there's some question of that person who's supposed to be managing another's goods, like, well, might need to make it right. Verse 9, for every breach of trust, for for every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing. Isn't that interesting? I think sometimes we have 
this sense of, well, you hurt someone's car, you need to make it right. You know, but if you, you know, break something that's only five bucks, ah, it's just five bucks. The way that we honor persons, it's, it, it's not necessarily the value. It goes anything, anything, from a cloak to a sheep to any lost thing. It says, it, 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 and someone says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God, and the one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. So again, if it's theft and it's found out that, no, the case, case looks like this was stolen, whatever the issues. It's not just give it back, it's give it back double. Verse 10 says, If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it to it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. Two more. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. And if the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. And if it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. Then that last little one says, hey, if you're borrowing something, and with the best of intentions, something goes wrong, at least under the old covenant, you'd be okay. But if you weren't around, you weren't taking care of it, you didn't have an eye on the other person's good, you should make it right. Again, these are just case laws, civil laws based on these moral laws of you shall not covet, you shall not steal. When there's someone responsible for the loss of property or the damage of property or the thievery of property, there should be something done to make it right. Why? Because it honors persons. It shows value. This morning I asked all my kids at breakfast, like, what was their most prized possession? That if dad were to do something to it, it would get under their skin a little bit. And my son, Elias, said, his Pokemon cards, right? That if I were to go into his room kind of angry about something, maybe I come in and his Pokemon cards are all over the floor, which has never happened. <laughs> you know, it would be a big deal if I came in and said, and I start ripping up every card. Now, it's something to say, oh, it's just stuff. You know what? Certain stuff attaches to, like, that means something. It has value. One of my kids said, yeah, Dad, if you took a baseball bat to the piano, that would hurt. You, maybe, sometimes maybe you read about civil uh, unrest in a marriage, one of the ways that they show anger toward their spouse is they break that thing they love. Because they know, I will hurt that person by violating their stuff. And in God's covenant family, those who have been redeemed by him and saved by him, it, the reason why properties of other matters is because they matter. And I'm going to show dignity and honor to their things as an expression of the dignity and value of the person. Psalm 24.1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. But in Genesis 1, when it talks about the creation of humanity, God makes male and female in his image to do what? To be rulers and stewards of God's things and to care for them and to honor them. 
And so what God has put into your hands, I want to honor you by honoring what you have put in your hands. And if you happen to take some of your stuff and you put it into my hands for a while, how much more so to honor you, I would honor those things. But to take from you or to destroy from you, to damage from you, is a dishonor of the person. Human life trumps possessions. Don't miss that. Ways that we value other people is we value their things. Many of the things that we have are for our very livelihoods. Many of us, our car is a means of livelihood. If you doubt that, ask someone who doesn't have an automobile and can only work on jobs along the bus route. So to take someone's livelihood away is, in many ways, to take away their life. And so we want to value persons by valuing their things. Can I close with just thinking a little bit about this? How does the gospel of Jesus Christ, how does coming into contact with Jesus Christ impact our view of things and people? What what should happen? Why don't you just turn to the New Testament when the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians is, is describing the kind of transformation that can happen to someone when they really trust the Lord. I want to look in Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 20, verses 17 through 19. He's talking about the kind of transformation that happens when someone comes out of the world as not walking with God and into a relationship with Jesus Christ. They've gone from darkness to light. They've they've had this transformation. What's supposed to happen? Verse 20, it says, uh, you don't want to live with impurity and and greed and sensuality, that's verse 19, but, verse 20, because that's not the way that you learned Christ. I love that expression. We learn Christ. We learn what Jesus is like. We learn his character, his power, his glorious salvation and redemption. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, but to instead be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put, in, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. When you go from not walking with God, far from God, and you believe in God and begin to trust trust God and be transformed by the mercy of Jesus Christ. You become this new person. You think differently. You live differently. You try to reflect Jesus. In verses 25, really through the rest of the book, it begins to describe the kinds of transformations that happens to a person who has been transformed by Jesus. But just jump down to verse 28. Look what it says. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather... Let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Do you see what happens to someone transformed by the gospel? They don't just quit stealing. They don't just get a job. They become generous. It's this, it's, this is the thing that's so beautiful about life under the new covenant versus the old covenant. The old covenant says, don't steal, be honest. The new covenant always calls us to something even higher than what was under the old covenant. 
Certainly don't steal. Certainly work with your own hands. But by because of the grace of Jesus Christ, be generous. Care for those in need. Care for the vulnerable. Fight for justice and poverty. I mean, these are the kinds of movements of the new covenant people. It's not, don't steal. It's not, get a job. It's this movement to generosity and to justice and to care and to compassion. You see that a little bit in that story of the wee little man. The wee little man was he who climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Remember him? His name was Zacchaeus. And when he had an encounter with Jesus Christ, Jesus says, I want to spend time with you, Zacchaeus. I'm going to your house today. What did Zacchaeus do? He said, you know what? I'm going to pay back every person I stole four times what I stole from them. Where do you think he got that idea? And then he says, and then I'm going to give half my possessions to the poor. Guess what? That wasn't required under the old covenant. He didn't have to do that. But he had experienced the new covenant king. And his response to the new covenant king was, I'm making things right, and I'm doing good. I'm, doing, I'm becoming generous. Why? Because he wasn't, he wasn't no longer held captive by his possessions and his property, but he saw people and they mattered. That's a new covenant transformation. There's another new covenant transformation. It's, you can read about it in Ephesians, excuse me, Acts chapter 4. The last little section of Acts chapter 4 talks about this. Listen to this. This is what happened when the gospel of Jesus Christ didn't just impact an individual, it impacted a whole community of people in Jerusalem. Wouldn't that be awesome? If this entire church and all the Christians in our city were so impacted by Jesus Christ that we turned this city upside down. It happened before, it can happen again. Look what happened in Jerusalem. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that, they be that belonged to them was his own, but they held everything in common. That doesn't mean communism, it just means open hand. My snowblower is your snowblower. My house is your house. My food is your food. But it was held with these open hands in common. And then it says in verse 33, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses, they sold them. And they brought the proceeds of what was sold and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. What a church. What a community transformation. It highlights one. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. I would love to have that epithet when I die. What did Barnabas do? Good old Barney, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Why? Why did they do this? Because Jesus, who was rich, became poor to make us rich. And they saw Christ's generosity, and it convicted them of their selfishness, their greed, their thievery. This is what the gospel should do to us. If you're anywhere like me, you have seen greed and stealing and thievery in your life, and it should convict us as we look at Jesus Christ, who is so generous to give his life for us. But 
through conviction, it, it leads us to comfort us in the grace of Jesus Christ that he died for thieves. He died for the greedy. And he died for those who have not made things right. He's died for people who have not treated possessions well. He's died for people who haven't treated people well. But after convicted and then comforted by God's grace, we should be compelled, one, to make things right. If, if God has laid it on your heart something that you need to make right, that you've stolen, you haven't made right, as a Christian, we should make things right. We should make restitution. But don't stop there. Move on to generosity, to caring, so that there aren't needs, that those who are victims are cared for, those who are hungry are fed. What a, what a beautiful picture it would be to be a part of a community alive with a revival like that. Can you imagine how much we could impact our neighborhoods and community if each of us held other people's possessions and property in sacred trust? honoring their ownership, treating their items with respect and honor, holding ours so lightly that we're giving it away because we value human lives and want them to know the Savior, Jesus Christ. Many years ago, a man named Martin Luther made this observation. He said, there are three conversions necessary. The conversion of the heart, the mind, and the purse. He's right. Sometimes our purse is converted after our hearts. Um, part of my own journey in this sermon series is uh, felt I had to make restitution with some stuff that I stole as a young boy. And uh, I'd just like to share with you the letter I got back. I got this on uh, Thursday. It was dated June 7, 2020. It says, Matt, received your letter. You are not the first I have re received over the years. It is something we all go through at one time or another. We are forgiven when we know Jesus Christ is our Savior. The money will be donated to a good cause. Thanks for your letter. I'm not sure if you do a, something of restitution this week, you'll get quite sweet of a letter. But there's depths of truth in there. Let me just close with Paul's admonition in Romans 13. Give to everyone that you owe them. Give to everyone that you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. May this be true of us. Amen? Amen. So as I said earlier, um, our love is always going to flow from Christ's love. And one of the ways that as Christians we remember this and champion, celebrate this is the taking of the Lord's Supper on a regular basis. That we remember the great cost 
of Jesus at the cross. We remember the great generosity of God in giving his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And the way that we remember time and time again the gift of God is the taking of the Lord's Supper. Just to remind you, when the Lord's Supper was instituted, it was instituted when Jesus gathered with his disciples on the night he was going to be betrayed. And on that night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had broken it, he distributed it, and he said, this is my body given for you in remembrance of me. And then later, he took a cup, and he lifted the cup, and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. And he said, drink of this. Whenever you drink, remember me. And so we're going to remember this through this little cup. So if you're new to this cup, there is a top cup that is a little cellophane thing with a little wafer inside. So I'll give you a moment to open that. Jesus' body was given for us. We read this as a church family earlier. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's remember that Christ gave his body for sinners. Let's take and eat and remember. In the same way, when we drink this cup, we're remembering the blood of Christ. So just carefully open these. It's actually not the easiest thing in the world. All throughout the Old Testament, blood was spattered, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. But we know from the book of Hebrews that it wasn't through the blood of animals that sin was atoned for. All those sacrifices pointed forward to the perfect sacrifice, the one who could take away the sin forever, Jesus' blood. And he gave it on the cross. Let's remember the blood of Christ shed for us for the forgiveness of sins. Let's drink and remember.